Chapter 19 of Democracy and Education An Introduction to the Philosophy of Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Suzanne Nash. Democracy and Education by John Dewey. Chapter 19 labor and leisure one the origin of the opposition the isolation of aims and values which we have been considering leads to opposition between them probably the most deep-seated antithesis which has shown itself in educational history is that between education in preparation for useful labor and education for a life of leisure the bare terms useful labor and leisure confirm the statement already made that the segregation and conflict of values are not self-enclosed but reflect a division within social life were the two functions of gaining a livelihood by work and enjoying in a cultivated way the opportunities of leisure distributed equally among the different members of a community it would not occur to anyone that there was any conflict of educational agencies and aims involved. It would be self-evident that the question was how education could contribute most effectively to both. And while it might be found that some materials of instruction chiefly accomplished one result and other subject matter the other, it would be evident that care must be taken to secure as much overlapping as conditions permit. That is, the education which had leisure more directly in view should indirectly reinforce as much as possible the efficiency in the enjoyment of work, while that aiming at the latter should produce habits of emotion and intellect which would procure a wealthy cultivation of leisure. These general considerations are amply borne out by the historical development of educational philosophy. The separation of liberal education from professional and industrial education goes back to the time of the Greeks and was formulated expressly on the basis of a division of classes into those who had to labor for a living and those who were relieved from this necessity. The conception that liberal education adapted to men in the latter class is intrinsically higher than the servile training given to the latter class reflected the fact that one class was free and the other servile in its social status. The latter class labored not only for its own subsistence, but also for the means which enabled the superior class to live without personally engaging in occupations taking almost all the time and not of a nature to engage or reward intelligence. That a certain amount of labor must be engaged in goes without saying. Human beings have to live, and it requires work to supply the resources of life. Even if we insist that the interests connected with getting a living are only material, and hence intrinsically lower than those connected with enjoyment of time released from labor, and even if it were admitted that there is something engrossing and insubordinate in material interests, which leads them to strive to usurp the place belonging to the higher ideal interests, this would not, 
barring the fact of socially divided classes, lead to neglect of the kind of education which trains men for the useful pursuits. It would rather lead to scrupulous care for them, so that men were trained to be efficient in them, and yet to keep them in their place. Education would see to it that we avoided the evil results which flow from their being allowed to flourish in obscure purulence of neglect. Only when a division of these interests coincides with the division of an inferior and a superior social class will preparation for useful work be looked down upon with contempt as an unworthy thing, a fact which prepares one for the conclusion that the rigid identification of work with material interests and leisure with ideal interests is itself a social product. The educational formulations of the social situation made over 2,000 years ago have been so influential and give such a clear and logical recognition of the implications of the division into laboring and leisure classes that they deserve a special note. According to them, man occupies the highest place in the scheme of animate existence. In part, he shares the constitution and functions of plants and animals, nutritive, reproductive, motor, or practical. The distinctively human function is reason existing for the sake of beholding the spectacle of the universe. Hence, the truly human end is the fullest possible of this distinctive human prerogative. The life of observation, meditation, cogitation, and speculation pursued as an end in itself is the proper life of man. From reason, moreover, proceeds the proper control of the lower elements of human nature, the appetites in the active motor impulses. In themselves greedy, insubordinate, lovers of excess, aiming only at their own satiety, they observe moderation, the law of the human, and serve desirable ends as they are subjected to the rule of reason. Such is the situation as an affair of theoretical psychology, and as most adequately stated by Aristotle. But this state of things is reflected in the constitution of classes of men, and hence in the organization of society. Only in a comparatively small number is the function of reason capable of operating as a law of life. In the mass of people, vegetative and animal functions dominate. Their energy of intelligence is so feeble and inconstant that it is constantly overpowered by bodily appetite and passion. Such persons are not truly ends in themselves, for only reason constitutes a final end. Like plants, animals, and physical tools, they are means, appliances, for the attaining of ends beyond themselves. Although, unlike them, they have enough intelligence to exercise a certain discretion in the execution of the task committed to them. Thus, by nature, and not merely by social convention, there are those who are slaves, that is, means for the ends of others. The great body of artisans are in one important respect worse off than even slaves. Like the latter, 
they are given up to the service of ends external to themselves but since they do not enjoy the intimate association with the free superior class experienced by domestic slaves they remain on a lower plane of excellence moreover women are classed with slaves and craftsmen as factors among the animate instrumentalities of production and reproduction of the means for a free or rational life individually and collectively there is a gulf between merely living and living worthily in order that one may live worthily he must first live and so with collective society the time and energy spent upon mere life upon the gaining of subsistence detracts from that available for activities that have an inherent rational meaning they are also unfit for the latter means are menial the serviceable is servile the true life is possible only in the degree in which the physical necessities are had without effort and without attention hence slaves artisans and women are employed in furnishing the means of subsistence in order that others those adequately equipped with intelligence may live the life of leisurely concern with things intrinsically worthwhile to these two modes of occupation with their distinction of servile and free activities or arts correspond two types of education the base or mechanical and the liberal or intellectual some persons are trained by suitable practical exercises for capacity in doing things for ability to use the mechanical tools involved in turning out physical commodities and rendering personal service this training is a mere matter of habituation and technical skill it operates through repetition and assiduity in application not through awakening and nurturing thought liberal education aims to train intelligence for its proper office to know the less this knowledge has to do with practical affairs with making or producing the more adequately it engages intelligence so consistently does aristotle draw the line between menial and liberal education that he puts what are now called the fine arts music painting sculpture in the same class with menial arts so far as their practice is concerned they involve physical agencies assiduity of practice and external results in discussing for example education in music he raises the question how far the young should be practiced in the playing of instruments his answer is that such practice and proficiency may be tolerated as conduce to appreciation that is to understanding and enjoyment of music when played by slaves or professionals when professional power is aimed at music sinks from the liberal to the professional level one might then as well teach cooking says aristotle even a liberal concern with the works of fine art depends upon the existence of a hireling class of practitioners who have subordinated the development of their own personality to attaining skill in mechanical execution the higher the activity the more purely mental it is 
the less does it have to do with physical things or with the body. The more purely mental it is, the more independent or self-sufficing is it. These last words remind us that Aristotle again makes a distinction of superior and inferior even within those living the life of reason. For there is a distinction in ends and in free action, according as one's life is merely accompanied by reason or as it makes reason its own medium. That is to say, the free citizen who devotes himself to the public life of his community, sharing in the management of its affairs and winning personal honor and distinction, lives a life accompanied by reason. But the thinker, the man who devotes himself to scientific inquiry and philosophical speculation, works, so to speak, in reason, not simply by it. Even the activity of the citizen in his civic relations, in other words, retains some of the taint of practice, of external or merely instrumental doing. This infection is shown by the fact that civic activity and civic excellence needs the help of others. One cannot engage in public life all by himself. But all needs, all desires imply in the philosophy of Aristotle a material factor. They involve lack, privation. They are dependent upon something beyond themselves for completion. A purely intellectual life, however, one carries on by himself, in himself. Such assistance as he may derive from others is accidental rather than intrinsic. In knowing, in the life of theory, reason finds its own full manifestation. Knowing for the sake of knowing, irrespective of any application, is alone independent or self-sufficing. Hence, only the education that makes for power to know as an end in itself, without reference to the practice of even civic duties, is truly liberal or free. 2. The Present Situation If the Aristotelian conception represented just Aristotle's personal view, it would be a more or less interesting historical curiosity. It could be dismissed as an illustration of the lack of sympathy or the amount of academic pedantry which may coexist with extraordinary intellectual gifts. But Aristotle simply described without confusion and without that insincerity always attendant upon mental confusion the life that was before him that the actual social situation has greatly changed since his day, there is no need to say. But in spite of these changes, in spite of the abolition of legal serfdom and the spread of democracy with the extension of science and of general education in books, newspaper, travel, and general intercourse as well as in schools, there remains enough of a cleavage of society into a learned and an unlearned class a leisure and a laboring class to make his point of view a most enlightening one from which to criticize the separation between culture and utility in present education behind the intellectual and abstract distinction as it figures in pedagogical discussion there looms a social distinction between those whose pursuits involve the minimum of self-directive thought and aesthetic appreciation, 
and those who are concerned more directly with things of the intelligence and with the control of the activities of others. Aristotle was certainly permanently right when he said that, quote, any occupation or art or study deserves to be called mechanical if it renders the body or soul or intellect of free persons unfit for the exercise and practice of excellence. Unquote. The force of the statement is almost infinitely increased when we hold, as we nominally do at present, that all persons, instead of a comparatively few, are free. For when the mass of men and all women were regarded as unfree by the very nature of their bodies and minds, there was neither intellectual confusion nor moral hypocrisy in giving them only the training which fitted them for mechanical skill, irrespective of its ulterior effect upon their capacity to share in a worthy life. He was permanently right also when he went on to say that, quote, all mercenary employments, as well as those which degrade the condition of the body, are mechanical, since they deprive the intellect of leisure and dignity, end quote. Permanently right, that is, if gainful pursuits, as matter of fact, deprive the intellect of the conditions of its exercise and so of its dignity. If his statements are false, it is because they identify a phase of social custom with a natural necessity. But a different view of the relations of mind and matter, mind and body, intelligence and social service, is better than Aristotle's conception, only if it helps render the old idea obsolete in fact, in the actual conduct of life and education. Aristotle was permanently right in assuming the inferiority and subordination of mere skill in performance and mere accumulation of external products to understanding sympathy of appreciation, and the free play of ideas. If there was an error, it lay in assuming the necessary separation of the two, and supposing that there is a natural divorce between efficiency in producing commodities and rendering service, and self-directive thought, between significant knowledge and practical achievement. We hardly better matters if we just correct his theoretical misapprehension and tolerate the social state of affairs which generated and sanctioned his conception. We lose rather than gain in change from serfdom to free citizenship if the most prized result of the change is simply an increase in the mechanical efficiency of the human tools of production. So we lose rather than gain in coming to think of intelligence as an organ of control of nature through action. If we are content that an unintelligent, unfree state persists in those who engage directly in turning nature to use, and leave the intelligence which controls to be the exclusive possession of remote scientists and captains of industry, we are in a position honestly to criticize the division of life into separate functions and of society into separate classes only so far as we are free from responsibility for perpetuating the educational practices which train the many for pursuits involving mere skill and production, and the few for a knowledge that is an ornament and a cultural embellishment. In short, ability to transcend the Greek philosophy of life and education is not secured by a mere shifting about of the theoretical symbols 
meaning free, rational, and worthy. It is not secured by a change of sentiment regarding the dignity of labor and the superiority of a life of service to that of an aloof, self-sufficing independence. Important as these theoretical and emotional changes are, their importance consists in their being turned to account in the development of a truly democratic society, a society in which all share in useful service and all enjoy a worthy leisure. It is not a mere change in the concepts of culture, or a liberal mind, and social service which requires an educational reorganization. But the educational transformation is needed to give full and explicit effect to the changes implied in social life. The increased political and economic emancipation of the masses has shown itself in education. It has affected the development of a common school system of education, public and free. It has destroyed the idea that learning is properly a monopoly of the few who are predestined by nature to govern social affairs. But the revolution is still incomplete. The idea still prevails that a truly cultural or liberal education cannot have anything in common, directly at least, with industrial affairs, and that the education which is fit for the masses must be a useful or practical education in a sense which opposes useful and practical to nurture of appreciation and liberation of thought. As a consequence, our actual system is an inconsistent mixture. Certain studies and methods are retained on the supposition that they have the sanction of peculiar liberality, the chief content of the term liberal being uselessness for practical ends. This aspect is chiefly visible in what is termed the higher education, that of the college and of preparation for it. But it has filtered through into elementary education and largely controls its processes and aims. But on the other hand, certain concessions have been made to the masses who engage in getting a livelihood and to the increased role of economic activities in modern life. These concessions are exhibited in special schools and courses for the professions, for engineering, for manual training in commerce, in vocational and pre-vocational courses, and in the spirit in which certain elementary subjects, like the three R's, are taught. The result is a system in which both cultural and utilitarian subjects exist in an inorganic composite, where the former are not by dominant purpose socially serviceable, and the latter not liberative of imagination or thinking power. In the inherited situation, there is a curious intermingling, in even the same study, of concession to usefulness in a survival of traits once exclusively attributed to preparation for leisure. The utility element is found in the motives assigned for the study, the liberal element in methods of teaching. The outcome of the mixture is perhaps less satisfactory than if either principle were adhered to in its purity. The motive popularly assigned for making the studies of the first four or five years consists almost entirely of reading, spelling, writing, and arithmetic is, for example, that ability to read, write, and figure accurately is indispensable to getting ahead. 
these studies are treated as mere instruments for entering upon a gainful employment or of later progress in the pursuit of learning according as pupils do not or do remain in school this attitude is reflected in the emphasis upon drill and practice for the sake of gaining automatic skill if we turn to greek schooling we find that from the earliest years the acquisition of skill was subordinated as much as possible to acquisition of literary content possessed of aesthetic and moral significance not getting a tool for subsequent use but present subject matter was the emphasized thing nevertheless the isolation of these studies from practical application their reduction to purely symbolic devices represents a survival of the idea of a liberal training divorced from utility a thorough adoption of the idea of utility which would have led to instruction which tied up the studies of situations in which they were directly needed and where they were rendered immediately and not remotely helpful it would be hard to find a subject in the curriculum within which there were not found evil results of a compromise between the two opposed ideals natural science is recommended on the ground of its practical utility but it is taught as a special accomplishment in removal from application on the other hand music and literature are theoretically justified on the ground of their cultural value and are then taught with chief emphasis upon forming technical modes of skill if we had less compromise and resulting confusion if we analyzed more carefully the respective meanings of culture and utility we might find it easier to construct a course of study which should be useful and liberal at the same time only superstition makes us believe that the two are not necessarily hostile so that a subject is illiberal because it is useful and cultural because it is useless it will generally be found that instruction which in aiming at utilitarian results sacrifices the development of imagination the refining of taste and the deepening of intellectual insight surely cultural values although in the same degree renders what is learned limited in its use not that it makes it wholly unavailable but that its applicability is restricted to routine activities carried on under the supervision of others narrow modes of skill cannot be made useful beyond themselves any mode of skill which is achieved with deepening of knowledge and perfecting of judgment is readily put to use in new situations and is under personal control it was not the bare fact of social and economic utility which made certain activities seem servile to the greeks but the fact that the activities directly connected with getting a livelihood were not in their days the expression of a trained intelligence nor carried on because of a personal appreciation of their meaning so far as farming in the trades were rule of thumb occupations and so far as they were engaged in for results external to the minds of agricultural laborers and mechanics they were illiberal but only so far the intellectual and social context has now changed the elements in industry due to mere custom and routine have become subordinate in most economic callings to elements derived from scientific inquiry 
the most important occupations of today represent and depend upon applied mathematics, physics, and chemistry. The area of the human world influenced by economic production and influencing consumption has been so indefinitely widened that geographical and political considerations of an almost infinitely wide scope enter in. It was natural for Plato to deprecate the learning of geometry and arithmetic for practical ends, because as a matter of fact, the practical uses to which they were put were few, lacking in content and mostly mercenary in quality. But as their social uses have increased and enlarged, their liberalizing or intellectual value and their practical value approach the same limit. Doubtless the factor which chiefly prevents our full recognition and employment of this identification is the conditions under which so much work is still carried on. The invention of machines has extended the amount of leisure which is possible even while one is at work. It is a commonplace that the mastery of skill in the form of established habits frees the mind for a higher order of thinking. Something of the same kind is true of the introduction of mechanically automatic operations in industry. They may release the mind for thought upon other topics. But when we confine the education of those who work with their hands to a few years of schooling devoted for the most part to acquiring the use of rudimentary symbols at the expense of training in science, literature, and history, we fail to prepare the minds of workers to take advantage of this opportunity. More fundamental is the fact that the great majority of workers have no insight into the social aims of their pursuits and no direct personal interest in them. The results actually achieved are not the ends of their actions, but only of their employers. They do what they do, not freely and intelligently, but for the sake of the wage earned. It is this fact which makes the action illiberal, and which will make any education designed simply to give skill in such undertakings illiberal and immoral. The activity is not free, because not freely participated in. Nevertheless, there is already an opportunity for an education which, keeping in mind the larger features of work, will reconcile liberal nurture with training in social serviceableness, with ability to share efficiently and happily in occupations which are productive. And such an education will of itself tend to do away with the evils of the existing economic situation. In the degree in which men have an active concern in the ends that control their activity, their activity becomes free or voluntary and loses its externally enforced and servile quality, even though the physical aspect of behavior remain the same. In what is termed politics, democratic social organization makes provision for this direct participation in control. In the economic region, control remains external and autocratic. Hence the split between inner mental action and outer physical action of which the traditional distinction between the liberal and the utilitarian is the reflex. An education which should unify the disposition of the members of society would do much to unify society itself. Summary 
of the segregations of educational values discussed in the last chapter that between culture and utility is probably the most fundamental while the distinction is often thought to be intrinsic and absolute it is really historical and social it originated so far as conscious formulation is concerned in greece and was based upon the fact that the truly human life was lived only by a few who subsisted upon the results of the labor of others this fact affected the psychological doctrine of the relation of intelligence and desire theory and practice it was embodied in a political theory of a permanent division of human beings into those capable of a life of reason and hence having their own ends and those capable only of desire and work and needing to have their ends provided by others the two distinctions psychological and political translated into educational terms effected a division between a liberal education having to do with the self-sufficing life of leisure devoted to knowing for its own sake and a useful practical training for mechanical applications devoid of intellectual and aesthetic content while the present situation is radically diverse in theory and much changed in fact the factors of the older historic situation still persist sufficiently to maintain the educational distinction along with compromises which often reduce the efficacy of the educational measures the problem of education in a democratic society is to do away with the dualism and to construct a course of studies which makes thought a guide of free practice for all and which makes leisure a reward of accepting responsibilities for service rather than a state of exemption from it end of chapter 19